The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. All right, ready to get into God's Word? All right, a couple, couple more weeks in Luke's gospel, then we're going to do something different for a while. Uh, but um, let's uh, start with this. Luke 17 is where we're going to be today, the first 19 verses. But let's answer this question. What does it take, what does it take to please God? Now, I would think that um, in your mind, coming here uh, today, at least in part, you think, well, I'm here today in worship with God's people because I think that's something that pleases God. I think it pleases God to be here. And um, in a way, you would be right, but it's not so much, just to split hairs a little bit, it's not so much you being here that pleases God, but you being here with a certain something. That's part of you being here, the reason you're here. Because uh, anything you would do to please God really boils down to having something else inside of you. And I wonder if you know what it is. Maybe you've already read the text. Maybe you've looked at the title of the message. Maybe you know what it is. But Hebrews eleven six really says it for us. Without, what does it say? Without faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So whatever you would do, including coming here for worship today, must be done in faith or it will not please God. And in today's passage, Luke 17, as I said, the disciples made a request of Jesus. They said to him, increase our faith. Now why did they say that? Because they were at the point in hearing everything he had taught them and everything he was modeling for them, they got to the point that, where they were like, you know what, we're not going to be able to do any of that if we don't have more faith. Because the demands were so high, the cost of following Jesus, so weighty, that they knew they needed more faith. They knew that they needed to get, because the way we define faith, of course, is this idea of having a conviction about things we don't see. And they knew they needed to get their eyes off of this world, off of their circumstances, off the things they could see, and onto the promises of God, the hope of eternity, all the things Jesus had been teaching. They needed faith to be able to do that and to be able to live out the very demanding things that Jesus was uh, saying. In essence, they were saying, if we're going to do this, Jesus, we need to get our eyes off of what we can see and onto your promises and help us do that. Increase our faith. And all of these years later, here we are as the followers of Jesus Christ, faced with the same weighty demands of following him, and no less in need of faith to do that, to live it out, and to please him. And so you should be making the same request. Increase my faith, God. Help me to believe you more. Help me to trust you completely. Increase my faith so I can live for you. Because as Christ followers, we need an ever-increasing faith to please him and to live for him. 
That's what we're going to see in these first 19 verses of Luke 17. And it's an interesting passage because it's made up of four different forms uh, or literary forms. Um, As you look through the passage here, there's a warning And then Jesus gives a woe attached to that or a curse. There's an inquiry. That's the main part of this, increase our faith. And then Jesus gives him a little saying that goes with that. Then there's a parable that he teaches. And then there's a healing incident that takes place. And the thing that strings all four of these elements together is this need for faith, for an ever increasing faith in our lives. So let's look at it together. We'll get right at it. We're going to read the passage as we go today. But um, as a Christ follower, you need an ever-increasing faith to first of all, see it here, resist the temptation to sin. You need an ever-increasing faith to do that, to to resist the temptation to sin. And notice, let's read the first couple of verses here. He said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. But woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Now notice Jesus said in the first uh, part of that first verse, uh, temptations to sin are sure to come. The Christian life is not a sinless life. How many people already knew that? The Christian life is not a sinless life. Becoming a follower of Jesus Christ doesn't mean that you're now perfect and not facing the temptation to sin. You're not immune to temptation just because you gave your life to follow Jesus. You're going to feel the draw to sin probably on a daily basis, probably multiple times in a day, no matter how long you've been walking with Jesus. And I think about that chorus we often sing, the the song, uh, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Does that sound about right? And I, I know having said all of that, I didn't even need to say it because I know that's exactly where we live. If I were to survey you right now, in fact, let's survey you right now. How many people in the last seven days, since we were last together, how many people would say, I was tempted to sin in the last seven days? Just raise your hand, okay? No, keep them up for a second. Just keep them up for a second. I just want to make sure every hand is up. Those of you who did not raise your hand were just faced with the temptation to not raise your hand and to lie about the fact that you face temptation and you succumb to it and so you have sins. You can put your hands down now. Thanks. Thank you for that. Well, I feel all of that was unnecessary. I know that you get it. Uh, We could say this. All of us are battling personal temptation all the time. But that's not even really the main point of what Jesus is saying here. Beyond that, as a believer, you're also responsible for whether or not you're leading others into temptation or away from it. You see, that's, that's really what Jesus is getting at here. And he gives this warning and a woe or a curse attached to the warning. The latter part of verse one, he says, woe to the one through whom temptations come. Woe to you or cursed are you if you lead other people into sin. I, I think about this as Mother's Day and... Um, I've been blessed to have women in my life who um, just by the manner of their life, by the words that they spoke and by the prayers that they prayed, always led me away from temptation. And I say that with the fullest confidence. My mom, my grandmother led me away from it. 
It was just the, just the way that they lived. But I, I think about us, and, I, and I'm, you know, I'm sure I've been parents for a long time now. And, and how easy it is to lead your kids down the wrong path. By your words, by your conduct, by your attitudes. And parents, there's a staunch warning for us here on this day with this passage in front of us. Are you making it easier or harder for your kids to resist temptation? Again, by, by the manner of your life, by the words that you speak, by the attitudes that you have, by your habits, by your actions. Are you helping your children or not? How about, how about those who are in dating relationships? Those who maybe are engaged. Are you and your boyfriend or girlfriend or your fiance, are you helping each other to resist temptation or are you making it easier to fall into sin? Men, are you and your friends good for each other? Genuinely holding each other to account? Genuinely helping one another live for Jesus? Or are you just making excuses for each other? Are you just giving each other a pass on the sin issues that plague men? What is your influence, Jesus is saying, on those around you? Is it for good or for evil? Now, you see, verse 2, he goes on, and this is where we see the harshness of the warning and the consequences. In fact, Jesus says, it would be better for him, better for the person who leads another person into sin, better for them if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea. Let's talk about a millstone for a second, in case you don't know what this is. A large stone shaped into a circle, some kind of an axle or handle put onto that, and uh, on a platform where you would put grain and it would be ground down. You would attach a donkey or a horse or maybe even a person would push this or in the case of a grist mill, there would be a water that would cause the action of the grinding to take place, but always there would be uh, this, um, this millstone that would be doing the grinding and it has a hole in the middle for that axle to go into and Jesus is using this picture saying, we're gonna take this millstone, we're gonna we're going to hang it, we're going to put your head right in that circle, and we're going to throw you into the sea. That's not going to go well. That's not going to go well. And Jesus is saying this, giving us this very vivid picture of a pretty horrible death, in order to say, it would be better that that happens than that you would lead a little one to sin. See what it says there in the latter part of verse 2? Then that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Now, who are the little ones? We automatically think about children, but in this context, in Luke, there's no indication that it's necessarily children, but it could be. But in the context of Luke and everything we've been looking at, for sure it means those who are new in the faith. For sure it means those who are vulnerable on the margins of society and weak. And it would include children. So anyone, anyone really, that you're leading into sin and temptation... It's just going to be better for you if you just, words of Jesus, that you just died. That's how serious this is. 
You see, and this is what we want to do with each of these points. Because we're talking about faith, we want to talk about what it means to live by sight and what it means to live by faith. Because faith is the evidence of things not seen, the conviction or assurance of uh, things to come. And so let's contrast this. When, when you live by sight, then you indulge in sin. You indulge in what the world offers you. You indulge in food and drink and sex and money and power. You live according to your flesh when you live by sight. There it is. I see it. I think that's going to satisfy me. I want that. I'm going to have it. You live selfishly. You live pridefully. And worst of all, Jesus says, you bring other people into that lifestyle. That's what happens when you live by sight, but when you live by faith now, you gain the ability to live a holy life. You, you gain the ability by the power of God's Holy Spirit to actually resist temptation, to say no to sin, and to live righteously. And faith actually gives you all the tools you need to do that. You just say, well, how could I do that? How could I possibly live and, and, and not give in to temptation when it comes my way? I find it so powerful, so alluring, and so drawing. How am I going to get that done? Well, I built a little toolbox here, and I've got seven tools that we're going to put inside of this. Uh, this, is, this is a toolbox of faith that helps us resist temptation and sin. Ready for these? Tool number one is uncommon community. And we're seeking to build an uncommon community of people. But the bottom line here is that we get to battle temptation together, not alone. It's very, very difficult to overcome temptation and sin alone. God gave us one another. And we should be in relationships that are so tight, so uncommon, so filled with love for one another. So committed to the same things that we help one another overcome the temptations. That's tool number one. How about this one? Uh, tool number two is the word of God. Faith draws you to the word of God so that you believe the right things. You believe the right things about sin and temptation. So in your mind, you begin reading what the word of God says. And when you read it, you know, I agree with God. That is never going to satisfy me. And in your mind you agree, and in your, in your will then, you align your will with his, and you say, okay, that's the way it's going to be. And then your body aligns itself, lives a consecrated or holy or set apart life for God. But it all starts with agreeing with what God has said about it. It's never going to satisfy me. Tool number three is worship. That we would engage in the worship of God, not just when we get together corporately, but like the entirety of my life is about worship, attributing worth to him, saying that he is of infinite value and nothing else is. It means I worship him, I worship the creator, but not the creation. God, for example, God created sex. Sex is a great thing inside marriage. It, it, but when it's twisted and distorted by the world and we start to engage in sexual activity that is not consistent with the word of God, what we are doing in essence is we're saying we're now going to worship the creation, the gift that God gave us, rather than the creator or the giver of the gift. We shift our worship and now we worship the wrong thing. 
And so to the extent that we're engaged in full-on worship of our God, we're going to make less opportunity for us to give in to temptation. That's tool number three. How about tool number four, a prayer? Um, So simple, really, but just calling out to God in the midst of temptation. Help me not to give in, Father. Give me a way out of this. We ought to be praying. Uh, Tool number five is, is love. That we would love God so much that we wouldn't want anything to come between him and us. I just love you. I love you for who you are. I love you for what you've done for me. And I know we're in relationship. I don't want anything to come between us. And so just engaging in the love relationship with him is one of those tools. Number six, engage in the mission. Tell other people about Jesus. Seriously, just engaging in the mission takes up time, if we can look at these last two kind of in this way, engaging in the mission, witnessing to Jesus Christ, every moment that you're actually speaking about him and sharing him with someone else, well, you're not sinning. It's just very practical. And the last tool, number seven, is that we would work for Christ. You have gifts, you have talents that God has given to you. And, and, and idle time really is the devil's playground. And, and if you're engaging in serving Jesus Christ, using what he's given you, using hours and hours of your week to serve God and others, I mean, it's just less time to sin. If you're in Harvest Kids and you're helping out kids, if you're in the parking lot on weekends... No matter what you're doing to engage in this ministry, it's just like that, that many hours, I will not be sitting. Does that make sense? It's really just simple math that we would do that. And so we need faith and ever-increasing faith to resist the temptation to sin. Let's get those tools in our toolbox and use them. And then secondly, let's look at this. We need an ever-increasing faith to forgive those who sin against you. Forgive those who sin against you. Is forgiving, is forgiving someone the hardest thing we have to do in life? Like forgiving, isn't it? Like, doesn't it, it just seems to me like it's the hardest thing that we ever have to do. I, mean, I was thinking a lot about this. Is there anything harder? And, and I, I don't think there is because I, I know that there are people, and tell me that you don't know this is true as well from your own experience, but there are people who actually find forgiveness so hard they'd rather die than forgive. In fact, so many people do, they go to their graves. How many people, don't raise your hand. How many people have a family member, have a family member who went to their grave with unreconciled relationships, unwilling to forgive, carrying bitterness and malice in their hearts? How many people know someone who went to their grave that way? I do. I'd rather die. That's what they're saying. I'd rather die than forgive that person. That's why I just think it's the hardest thing we ever have to do. And Jesus goes after it right here. Look at verses three and four now. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now note that uh, forgiving someone here does not mean that we're giving away free passes to sin. That's, that's not it at all. No free passes to sin. Notice some of the words that are used here. Uh, the first uh, word that's notable is the word rebuke. In other words, it's very often appropriate that sin gets called out. 
that there needs to be a rebuke. Probably not every time, but, but often sin should be pointed. That's not appropriate. That really hurt me. That's just wrong. It's sin. It's, there's a rebuke here. And then notice that the goal or where it goes is that the sinner repents. We've talked about repentance a lot. It's agreeing with God and turning in the other direction. I'm not going to do that anymore. And so the right words are here. We're not giving sin a pass. There's rebuke and there's repentance. We're not overlooking the fact that it's sin and it needs to be dealt with. Now, verse 4. Here's where it gets ridiculous. Is it okay to say that sometimes the demands of discipleship are ridiculous? You're not sure. Yes, they are. They are, sometimes. From our human standpoint, we're looking at this, verse four. If he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you, multiple choice, you, A, don't have to forgive because seven times is ridiculous. Or B, probably should forgive because it sounds Christian. Or C, must forgive. Which is it? Well, that's what I have in my Bible. Seven times, seven times. I'm really sorry for that. Seven times. Well, Todd, I take the Bible literally. Does that mean if he comes eight times, I'm finally off the hook? <laughs> uh, no, it does not mean that. It, what Jesus is saying here, as, listen, as many times as it takes, as many times as he comes, a ridiculous number of times, and it all seems so crazy, It all seems so crazy. You see, because when you live by sight, this is the way it goes, you hold grudges. You make people pay. You look for retribution. You get even. You certainly don't turn the other cheek and let them hit you again and again and again and again. But when you live by faith, it's exactly what you do. You forgive over and over again, seven times a day if necessary, as many times as it takes is what Jesus is really saying here. Why would I do that? Isn't that exactly what he did for us? Isn't that exactly what Jesus did? did for us? Isn't that exactly what Jesus does for us? Some, somehow it, it just seems to me that it's way more than seven times a day that Jesus does this for me. I'm so sorry for that, Jesus. Please forgive me for that, Jesus. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. The grace of God just being poured out in my life. And we can be so petty with one another. Over, over sins that are far less than the sins we've committed against God. And who, who, honestly, who do we think we are that we would ever hold a grudge against another human being who's also susceptible to sin? Who do we think we are when God forgives us for the greater offense that we've committed against him? If Jesus doesn't hold on to the offense, then neither should you or I. But it's going to take faith to get there. An ever-increasing faith. Well, how about, how about this next? 
You also need an ever-increasing faith to do the miraculous. Now listen, that word uh, miraculous or miracle is a bit of a provocative word in a church like ours where we have people from very diverse backgrounds or no backgrounds in church at all. We have some people here who were part of churches where, you know, apparently miracles happened every single week in the services. You know, I mean, you know the kind of miracles I'm talking about. They don't mind talking about miracles. And then some of you, the word miracle was never allowed to be used in your church because you were so afraid of the idea. And, and we're trying to stay in this, this place of being biblical and finding what God's word says about it. And so it's a provocative little word, miraculous. And as Christians, when we think about this and, and what we really want it to mean is, because I don't think any of us would deny that we want miracles to happen, but what we're really thinking when we say this is we really want to be able to do magic tricks. Isn't that what we mean? We, we want to do magic tricks. That's what, that's what we, we want. We want to show. We want a spectacular display of physical healings. We want miraculous provisions of finances and goods and property. We want, we want phenomena, miraculous phenomena to happen in our midst. That's what we're really thinking of. We're thinking of the supernatural happening right in front of our eyes. And when we think about those things, we're really missing the point. Because we always only think of the physical things, the material things that can happen to us. That's what we think when we think miracles. Now, here, here, here we go. And this is beginning now, verse 5, 5 and 6. This is the little inquiry and then what Jesus says about it. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. There's the request that, we're, that this whole message is based on. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, just a little bit of faith. We looked at this back in Luke 13. The mustard seed is a little, little, little seed so insignificant and yet it results in such great things if you had faith like the grain of mustard seed you could say to this mulberry tree be uprooted and plant it in the sea and it would actually obey you and so, so the apostles come verse 5 with this request and their request kind of indicates a bit of a lack of faith they think they don't have enough faith and so they're coming and asking for more but Jesus is so patient and gracious to them and he he indicates if you had faith and he's kind of implying here that they do have this amount of faith just a little so he's being kind to them you could say if you just had this little bit you could actually say to this mulberry tree now let's talk about the mulberry tree for a second here's a picture of one this is not a tree you plant in your yard for aesthetic purposes, okay? It's pretty ugly, and it grows kind of wildly in whatever direction it chooses, and so you can't really control what it does. Here's the thing you need to know about the mulberry tree. The root system is just as whack as what you see above the ground. It's just everywhere in every direction and deeply rooted. In fact, one commentary said of this, this is the mulberry, what the King James Version called the sycamine tree, not the sycamore, but the sycamine. It's a black mulberry. If there's any botanists or arborists in the group, the Latin name is Morus nigra, a very common in Israel. And this is what one commentator said, it sends its enormous roots deeply into the ground in every direction so that few trees can compare with it in steadfast firmness. And all that to say, if you are looking for the worst tree to uproot or to transplant, this is it. So Jesus picks 
the toughest of all trees to move and uses that as his example. If you have a little bit of faith, you could move this kind of tree. That's what he's saying. He lets them know that a small amount of faith is sufficient and it's going to result in great things if you would just exercise that. That actually, on its own, is going to fulfill the request you have to have your faith increase. The very thing that, thing that they wanted. And so start with what you have. It's enough. It's enough to forgive, for example, to forgive that person who's hurt you. Just a little bit of faith is enough. And so we have this exaggerated example of the impossibility of a mulberry tree being uprooted and planted in the sea. And again, that's not meant to convey some kind of a amazing yet useless magic trick. When you look at the book of Acts and you see the apostolic ministry, Jesus had commissioned these apostles to go into the world and proclaim the gospel. He didn't, he didn't, uh, he didn't commission them to go into all the world and uproot trees and move them. And there's not a single example anywhere of that physical phenomena actually happening. It's not about that. It's always about the mission and the message and the, listen, this is, a, this is a great line to help us understand what we should be thinking when we hear the word miracle. But awesome things you cannot explain by human effort. That's what we're looking for. For example, the, the miracle of conversion that any of us who were trapped in our sin and come to faith in Jesus Christ and find the relief from that and find the forgiveness of sins and are living in freedom and the liberty of following Jesus Christ, no longer burdened by our sin, no more guilt, fear, and shame. Is that not a miracle every time that happens? Is that not a miracle that happened in your own life? It's awesome. It's an awesome thing you can't explain by human effort. Or talk about marriage. Uh, the miracle of marriage. And the reason why I'm, t I'm, I'm labeling this as a miracle is because increasingly in a culture that hates Jesus and hates the Bible and hates marriage and is warring against it at every turn, increasingly, marriage will become so rare Marriage itself, that people get married, will become so rare, and a marriage that actually lasts a lifetime will become even rarer, that every time that happens, that's going to be a miracle of God. You know, like the prime minister and the queen send out letters for the 25th and 50th and 60th anniversary, 70th anniversaries when those happen, and it's been such a big deal, you know, that that, that would actually happen for people, and, and I'm just saying that they're not going to have to send out a lot of letters in the future, and so every marriage that actually is committed to one another and lasts a lifetime, listen, we need to stand to our feet and applaud those marriages because it's a miracle of God. And a testimony to his goodness and his glory to us. Or, or as I talked just before the message and I showed you those pictures of those little babies in the pregnancy resource center. How is that not a miracle? Beyond the miracle of birth itself. This is the miracle of coming alongside a woman who is in a crisis pregnancy and saying to her, we'll help you. We'll walk this journey with you. 
You can have this baby and we're not gonna leave you on your own to do it by yourself. We're, we're just gonna come alongside. That's a miracle every time that happens. And beyond that, the miracle, and I know I've spoken about this before, but in, in a society where they're not terribly fond of Christ followers and, and faith-based ministries and such, and, and people that stand on the word of God, the government agencies in this town who have little recourse to help these women, they refer, these government agencies who hate Christians, refer to the Barry Pregnancy Resource Center for help. That to me is a miracle, that that would happen and that so many could be helped. And uh, that's three examples. How about addictions being overcome? And uh, uh, Pastor uh, Rogers over here to my right, our biblical soul care pastor and our STEPS program just concluded a first run uh, this past uh, winter. And they had their celebration time this past week where people were just talking about their release from addictions. And every one of those is a miracle of God happening in people's lives where they're finding freedom. That's an awesome thing, is it not? something that we should be thanking God for and all of those are miracles. Now listen, when you live by sight, you believe that good things come to those who work hard for them and working hard is a good thing. But the problem comes when you think that they only, that the only time anything good happens is because of hard work. And that's not true. If that's true in the church or in your family, in your personal life, then you can have at it and take all the credit because you did it, but you're not going to see miraculous things happen. But when you live by faith, in contrast, you see awesome and unexplainable and divine things happening in your life and in the lives of people around you. Augustine said it this way, I love this little line, faith is to believe what you do not see. The reward of this faith is to see what you believe. Not just in eternity, where everything's going to be perfect, we're going to see things for what they are, but you're going to see those things now in this life, the miracles right in front of you. Not every time, not perfectly, but according to his will. There should always be some things happening around us and in us that are divinely caused miracles. All right, ready to move on? Next one. Um, let's look at this. Um, Ever-increasing faith to serve God and others with humility. So the next section is a, a parable that he tells. Look at this, seven uh, through 10. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline a table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. And so he tells this little story and it's a little challenging for us because I don't think anyone in this room is a master who has servants Parents with kids don't count, okay? I realize that some of you had kids to run jobs for you. Would you mind going and getting this for me? Would you mind cutting the grass? I need you to go shovel the drive. I get all of that. I, I know that that's part of the household thing, but technically those are not your servants, okay? Technically, not your servants. So, so no one here really understands the concept of the master-slave, master-servant relationship here, and that's what Jesus is speaking out of here, and he asks a series of rhetorical questions that demand a certain answer. So the first question is, if any one of you has a servant, and none of you do, but if you did, and you sent them out plowing or keeping sheep, and they come in at the end of the day, 
and, and what the thing, you know, come on in. I'm sure you worked very hard today. Why don't you sit over here, put your feet up. Can I get you a glass of water? So that's the question. That's the rhetorical question. And it expects a very firm no in response. None of you would do that. You wouldn't bring your servant in and then start serving them. But here's what would happen, verse 8, another rhetorical question. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly? Hey, listen, uh, thanks for working in the field today, but now I'm hungry, and by the way, you stink, and you've been sweating all day, and you're dirty. Go take a shower, put some clean clothes on, get into the kitchen, and make my supper, okay? And then, after you've done all that, and you've cleaned up the dishes, then you can go ahead and have your supper, that's exactly what's going on. That's the second rhetorical question. It demands a firm yes. That's exactly what would happen. Verse nine, does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? What's the answer? No, he does not. That's his job. So then Jesus gets to his point after going through all of that. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, you're going to say we are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. Now, th this isn't a, a primer on master-slave relationships. That's what Paul did in Ephesians 6. But this is a primer on God and us relationship. That's what this is. Because God's the master and we're the servant. And he's hoping to help us understand a little bit more of what that relationship is actually like. We are the servants or the slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. I didn't get a single amen on that, so I'll try again. I know that you're not eager to sign up to be slaves, but this is the whole deal here. Uh, we are servants or slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen, amen so we are. And, and, and he's the one who's given us life. He's the master. We owe him Everything. We owe him our very lives. Our service for Christ is an expression of our love for him. We want to be his servants. Because he saved us. Because the Father sent the Son to die on the cross for us. Because the Holy Spirit resurrected Christ from the dead to give us new life. And you only get to this place of saying that final statement and declaring yourself to be an unworthy servant. You only get to that place if you're humble enough to get there, to realize that you're a slave of Christ. I mean, think about it. With all that God has done for you, what more could you want? What, what more do you think God owes you? He saved you from sin and death. What more does he owe you? He's promised you heaven, eternity, comfort, joy, unbridled peace like you've never known in the presence of God forever. What more does he owe you? more does God owe you? See, when you live by sight, you want to be recognized. You want to be something. You want to be acknowledged. And the worst of it all is you think you deserve more than what you've already gotten. 
Thank you for saving me, God. Thank you. But what have you done for me lately? Why is life so hard? Why don't you bless me more? Why do I have to go through this? Why is my life not like this other person's? Why don't I see more blessing? What more does God owe you? This is where I want to live because this is my struggle. It's not just yours. I struggle with this every day. I think God should bless me more than he already has. And, and when I'm in the right place and the right frame of mind and I believe the right thing, this is where I need to live. This is where we all need to live. If God gave me nothing more in this life and if God took away everything that he has already given me apart from salvation, my sins are still forgiven and I'm going to heaven. But if he took everything else away from me, I should still love him with all of my heart and serve him joyfully as his servant. I should. That's what it means to live by faith. You never look to be thanked or recognized or compensated or promoted in any way. So I love that line so much and I feel like I need to say it daily. And I wonder if you would just say it with me. That line from verse 10, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Let's say it together. We are unworthy servants. That's where we need to live. That's living with an ever-increasing faith. And that plays out so well going into this final point because you need ever-increasing faith to be grateful to God for what he's done for you. Instead of God thanking you for serving him, you ought to be thanking him for saving you. He goes into this healing story. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance, lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. He fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answered, we're not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now these lepers know that they have no recourse but the mercy of God. Lepers lived as dead men. They were isolated uh, from the community, from society. They were ostracized in every way. They found solace in one another. We have these 10, at least one of them is a Samaritan. The rest presumably are Jews. Jews and Samaritans never mix together, and yet here they are, these lepers uh, together, because they're all they had. And so the race distinction is erased in light of the common need that they have. Sounds a little bit like what the church ought to be. So they come and they plead for Christ's mercy, and he heals them. There's little doubt that this is his coming to Jesus moment in terms of the Samaritan leper. He's not only physically healed in this moment, but spiritually healed. He turns back from going to the priest because he already knows he's healed. 
on the way to the priest. Jesus sent them. They get healed. He looks down and realizes, I'm healed. And then he, he thinks, I don't need to go to the priest to be examined. Why am I going to the priest? I need to go back to Jesus. I need to get more of what that's about. I need to follow him. And so he turns and he goes back, really in this moment, pledging his life to also be a follower of Jesus Christ. He wants to be about everything that Jesus is about. And he falls at his feet, verse 16. He falls at Jesus' feet and gives him thanks. That's the right response of faith. Unbridled gratitude for what God has done. A complete surrender of one's life to the one who has given us that life. This man was dead and now he's alive. That was exactly our situation as the followers of Christ. Luke notes that he was a Samaritan and this would sting the hearers again. Any non-Jew who did something like this would sting the Jews who were the covenant people of God. How is it that the Samaritan becomes the best example of righteous living? Jesus notes that just this Samaritan comes back. It's so easy for us to be like the Jews, to slip into this sense of entitlement and not to be grateful to God for all of the things that he has done and is doing in our lives. And he says to him, rise and go your way, verse 19, your faith has made you well. Your faith has saved you. When you live by sight, you see what you've done. You want the credit. You think you deserve what you have. There's a sense of entitlement. We have so much, but when we don't get more, we can so easily become ungrateful. That's living by sight. But when you have faith, gratitude flows because you know who has done what and for whom. I think about a couple of key verses like Psalm 126, verse 3. The Lord has done great things for us. and We are glad. Or 2 Corinthians 9, 15. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Should those not be the words that are coming off of our lips? And so with all of that said, the way that we have most often defined or described faith is this way. Faith is believing the word of God. This will be familiar to a lot of you. Faith is believing the word of God and acting upon it no matter how I feel, knowing God promises a good result. And when we run everything that we've talked about in Luke 17 through the grid of this definition or description of faith, here's what we have. Our ability to be grateful, our ability to do awesome things for God, our ability to serve him and others with humility, to forgive when we've been sinned against, our ability to resist temptation ourselves only happens because we have faith in Jesus Christ. There's so much that we can see with our eyes, so many circumstances that we go through, so many things that we feel as we look at this description, so many things that we feel that can keep us from doing all of these things. But it's right there in front of us. We need to believe the word of God and we need to act on it. That's how we please God. That's how we have an ever-increasing faith in him. Amen?
All right, let's pray together. Father, I am again overwhelmed by your word and, um, and caught again really by the alarming clarity that it has. As if you have once again lined up a word, a verse, a section that matches the week that I've lived. That speaks into the, the struggles that I've had or the circumstances that I've faced. And help me, helping me to think through changes that need to be made in my life. God, this is a hard word. But I love that it's not without hope. In fact, it's filled with promise. And it's filled with the help that you provide us through your Holy Spirit. And so God, do that deep work in our hearts and our lives again. Give us an ever-increasing faith in Jesus Christ. In his name I pray. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at And remember, you are loved.